Hello, welcome to another episode of Courageous Conversations. Today I have Brandon Lee here. Uh, we're going to have a conversation about the police force in the United States, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, a difficult, complicated history, as well as the difficult and complicated present um, around this American institution. So, uh, Brandon, thanks so much for joining me here today. One of the things that I want to do to kind of kick things off is just talk about at a really high level nationwide. Can you just share some statistics that kind of highlight maybe some of the problems that exist? Because I know, you know, there's a lot of people out there who maybe don't recognize the problems that are existing uh, within the American police force. And maybe a little bit of just good hard data uh, around that would be helpful uh, for some people to hear before we get into this conversation. Absolutely. Uh, first, mic check. Are you able to hear me okay? Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, first, I want to just extend my gratitude for allowing me to be on your platform with you today. Um, so the first, I'll just uh, highlight, this just came out of Yale News. And so I'll just read it just to make sure I don't get anything, uh, uh, mistake anything. So over the past five years, there's been no reduction in the racial disparity in fatal police shooting victims, despite the increased use of body cameras and closer media scrutiny. All right, so this is according to researchers at Yale and the University of Penn. Um, they found that researchers found that victims identifying as black, indigenous, or people of color, whether armed or unarmed, has significantly higher death rates compared with whites. And those numbers remain relatively unchanged from 2015 to May of 2020. So this is over the past five years. And this is according to an edition of the Journal of Epidemiology and Public Health. Um, so it goes on and on and on, but essentially it found that there was a maybe 1% decrease in white deaths related to uh, you know, law enforcement engagements. But essentially black people were killed at 2.6 times the rate of white people. The Spanish were killed at nearly 1.3 times the rate of white people. And uh, Native Americans when unarmed, uh, when armed were the top, black people when unarmed were the top. So. There's plenty of data out there. I encourage you to go and check it out. Yeah, definitely. So I guess a nice place to uh, to start here is, can you talk to us about, you know, just a, a brief summary of the history of American policing, uh, where the police force came from um, and all of that? Sure, so I think a great resource would be the new Jim Crow written by Michelle Alexander. She actually chronicles, you know, the times that uh, I grew up in Oakland, California in the 80s, early 90s, and in the South uh, during the 90s. And I happened to attend college there. So I didn't understand the federal federal, you know, attention that uh, my demographic was getting at the time. But I definitely ex was having experiences, multiple experiences that now make sense. Uh, so essentially, I would have to point back to, you know, 1850. Uh, I believe that's the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, fugitive slave law. There are historians that could probably tell the story better than me, but essentially uh, uh, policing as we know it from a community lived experience perspective was born out of uh, slave plantation owners seeking to put together patrols to bring back and recapture slaves who had escaped, you know, for their freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember one thing that I had heard, and again, like you, I'm sure someone with more knowledge could tell the story better, but, um, you know, when slavery was officially ended, the kind of loophole that was left was that slavery was still allowed if it was punishment for a crime. 
So then they said, okay, well, great, let's go find people and, you know, get them for every kind of crime imaginable, including ones that were fabricated, not true. And then we can still have our slaves. We just got to go through this process of, you know, turning them into criminals first, and then we can get slave labor out of them. And I know a lot of, again, a lot of it was born out of that as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, in our work that we do, I think, you know, our slave narrative is, is uh, you know, well chronicled, but it still needs to be discussed and uplifted. One thing I believe that distinguishes our approach is to discover who were the uh, black African-American people during that time who uh, were free, who had in some way discovered their liberation amongst uh, during slavery times and how did they find a way to thrive, to own businesses, to still be patriotic yet up, 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 uplifting their community in a spot of uh, pressure and oppression. And so there were people by the name of Prince Hall. We have to honor uh, people like him uh, who started what I would, many would consider to be the first black institution in uh, the United States, you know, in the 1780s, uh, you know, petitioning the legislature to abolish slavery in Massachusetts in 1777, on and on and on. So while there, uh, the policing, I believe, was probably born out of this uh, slave narrative, at the same time, uh, we spent a lot of time and care to discover who were those who were still discovering ways to thrive in spite of that oppression. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, your experiences. Um, you said you were in the South in the 90s. So I guess this would be a good place if you could just share with us some stories um, from your own past and maybe even some uh, stories from your work with t for t the organization you run, that both highlight the problems that exist in the policing force, but also that highlight the good that exists in the policing force, right? Because again, I don't want to make this a one-sided conversation where all we look at is the bad, right? Because there is good as well. So if you can maybe share like one story from each end of the spectrum, that'd be great. Sure, um, definitely. And I would like to contextualize it that, you know, my reflection on my personal journey and experiences, you know, I was fortunate when I did encounter racial profiling and police misconduct. In most cases, I was able to find a level of accountability. And because of that, I was able to discover some sense of healing. And so these stories that I'm gonna share, you know, they reflect kind of where I was on my spectrum. And so I just wanna honor that there's a, a, a variety of experiences out there and I wanna make sure that I don't speak for everyone. But sure. uh, in terms of, uh, you know, definitely um, I've, I had more negative experiences for sure, engaging with law enforcement. So between 16 and 24, you know, in Oakland, California, between 16 and 24, when I grew up, black men would be, you know, one out of four probably be killed in a homicide. One out of three would see the inside of a jail cell at some time and pack the rest of the life. And if you survived all of that, then you still had, you know, racism in public health and health disparities, you know, similar to what we see in COVID, et cetera. Uh, so the landmines were so huge. And so, um, you know, when I was 14, uh, probably my first introduction was visiting my cousin's house in West Oakland. Um, and just walking across the parking lot, walking. Uh, three police cars come in, screeching their tires, two officers in each car. Everyone jumps out, guns pulled, get on on the ground, get on the ground. You know, I remember, you know, inhaling the, the, the dust and the, 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 you know, the gravel, et cetera. Um, and that turned out into a two hour ordeal where I was detained and just essentially just embarrassed and. Uh, humiliated and luckily it was my cousins in West Oakland who got word of what happened and came and that's where I was able to see that while the, the, the police might have had the force, the community had the power because they were able to um, apply you know, legal pressure, legal means to make sure that I was really safely. 
Um, so these are quite a few negative experiences, and that's what kind of woke me up uh, to this work. I'll conclude that story by saying that I went down to internal affairs, uh, um, rushed and put in my uh, my application petition that I, you know, something wrong had happened, like I was taught to do, and uh, got no resolution. <laughs> Zero. I don't even know if I was contacted about it. So that's where, uh, you know, kind of a do for self and self-efficacy uh, came from, you know, that encounter at 14 years old. On the flip side, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, and now this is now uh, 10, 15 years later. So a lot has happened between these experiences. Um, mm -hmm. But I was, uh, a, I was teaching um, at uh, the University of Delaware and was embraced by uh, the community there to great care of me. I love uh, uh, the people that I met there. One in particular was uh, named Lieutenant Jonathan Hall. However, I didn't meet him that way. I just met him as, uh, as Joe. And uh, he was the first person I met at the Black Cultural Center at University of Delaware. I uh, had him offer my historically black fraternity uh, shirt. I was there to meet a fraternity brother uh, who I never met. And uh, he reached out with some food and said, man, you hungry? And that's how we met. And just so happened, he was best friends with the person that I was looking to meet uh, in another fraternity, but uh, we had some shared interests and we would have lively engaging conversations about community law enforcement uh, uh, interactions. And he was one of the few that would challenge me, you know, in his perspective and I dang sure challenged him, you know, coming from my Oakland perspective. Uh, and later I found out that he was first a teacher in K through 12, then became a police officer and then was a school resource officer. And I don't believe in police officers in schools, but uh, this was someone who was well-respected in the community, well-respected in law enforcement, um, and epitomized what, you know, our brand is community conscious policing. He's someone that showed me that, you know, it's possible to wear these multiple hats um, and do it from a place of integrity and uh, have your actions in alignment with that. So a shout out to uh, Lieutenant Jonathan Hall. Unfortunately, he passed away of cancer um, uh, since then. And his um, uh, his nephew was one of our first interns at T4T. And uh, I just, his last words to me were carpe diem, uh, you know, live for today. So I just want to recognize uh, Lieutenant Jonathan Hall and his family. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This, this you know, uh, this could just be the effect of, you know, the media narratives that are fed to me, right? Um, or, or even, you know, what was fed to me growing up. But it seems like there's, there's two ideas I have in my mind of like the type of people, right, who are on police forces. There's people like what you just mentioned or people who, you know, from their track record as a teacher, you can tell that like they're about serving and helping and really embody that motto of protect and serve and sacrifice myself for the good of the community. And truly the best in human beings are exemplified and show up in police officers, a lot of them, right? And then you have this the other persona type that like, you know, that the, the media tends to, to put out a lot. I don't know, of course, if this applies, but we'll call it the Derek Chauvin type, the type that, you know, is maybe gets trips, you know, gets a, a power trip, right? And abuses power and doesn't have control over their emotions and probably joined the police force for the wrong reasons to begin with and are really a threat. Is it... First off, I mean, is that even an accurate representation of officers, right? Those are the two models that I've seen. Is there a lot in the middle? Have you seen it polarized on those ends? Or is all of that just total bunk that's been pushed to me by different, you know, information sources? You know, um, great context. What I would offer based on my experience, having worked in police accountability, 
you know, uh, I were, were cases where I had to, um, you know, I was awarded a monetary settlement for police misconduct. Uh, their disciplinary actions were taken against the officers. Um, cases where we were able to, uh, um, uh, city council agreed with the community's proposal, uh, which I endorsed based on being detained in front of my, uh, my own home in, in, in uh, Oakland. Uh, a few years later, and they ended up taking the $1.4 plus million dollars from internal affairs that was used to investigate citizen community co complaints against the police and used it to fund um, the Community Police Review Board in Oakland, which is now one of the strongest in the country, if you ask me. So what I would offer, you know, with my kind of background and lens is we have to keep in uh, context the structure and the system because the power that Chauvin, if I pronounce his name correctly, exhibited was an extension of a power structure that he worked for. Uh, there, uh, in order for physical violence to happen in between people, there has to be a cult, not has to be, but often there's a it comes from a culture of violence that allows that behavior to be permissible. So the reason why community oversight boards, for example, can be very useful is that if they uh, are able to earn access to the uh, records, the personnel records or the files of that officer and see, is this a pattern or practice, which in Chauvin's case is, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, allegedly seems to definitely be the case, um, then that's where you can see that there's a lot of protection and there's a lot of other, um, you know, what I would assume to be other parties involved for that one action to happen that's so extreme. Uh, so these are things that I just think rise to the surface from a culture and uh, that's where we have to honor this individual experiences with people like me who have historically been targeted, me, my daddy, my uncles, my grandparents, uh, and so forth. That's where uh, at least our approach is to censure the experiences of people who are most impacted and live closest to the pain. Even though we do recognize the trauma that folks deal with working in, you know, uh, what could be oppressive systems. So if you look at law enforcement, you'll probably find more cases of health issues, more divorce, more, uh, um, um, you know, trauma showing up in other ways, suicides. I mean, there was a couple of suicides after the cap the capital. Um, yeah. uh, 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 so that's where we, we recognize trauma on a systemic level of all participants, but we have to center those who have historically been most impacted. It's interesting. It's almost painting this picture of like, you know, police officers are subjected to intense amounts of trauma, right, themselves. They are just put in terrible situations that really leave marks on their mind, spirit, soul, psyche, whatever you want to call it, right? And they may not get the adequate care they need to care for themselves, so it becomes real internalized damage, and then they, wielding state power, carrying emotional damage, end up inflicting real harm on other people as well. Is that maybe a fair assessment? Yeah, and I would, I would, uh, you know, again, I would, I think that would be a fair assessment. We would, um, um, you know, we would use the uh, community as the barometer by which to measure the trauma, but I think the same, we would come to the same conclusion. Um, and so, you know, using maybe Resma Manakam, I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, uh, he definitely was an inspiration for the book that we're the third edition of our book that we're writing that'll be out this fall um, and talking about how, uh, you know, uh, even coming from uh, the uh, um, uh, the background of those who were the oppressor 
and how that trauma can be used to blow through the backs of black and brown bodies. And so absolutely there, I will believe that there is a correlation, but at the very least, because of the, you know, just taking a step back, you know, one group pays another group through taxes. You know, there is a power structure. And so even with all of that being probably close to accurate, you know, as a teacher, you know, my background is higher education as a teacher, as a faculty member, no matter what happens with the budget, my salary, et cetera. When you send your kids to my classroom or you come to my classroom, there's an expectation that you expect of me and my colleagues. Uh, so I think that's across the board from this. You know what I mean? Uh, so that's where I would say yes. And, you know, we still have to perform at a certain level of humanity. Yeah. Um, an another maybe, I don't know, competing set of theories, right? Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, right? Some folks that I've talked to believe that the police force just attracts the wrong type of people. The type of people who are attracted and want to become police officers are the type of people we really should not have in police officers because they're the ones that, you know, maybe they join the force okay, but you add a few years of mental emotional trauma that police officers have to go through and they become dangerous, right? So it's a matter of recruiting and, you know, weeding out the wrong applicants and structuring things so that the right applicants want to come join. That's that's one view of it. The other view of it is that the people who join the police force are the right type of people who are joining for the right reasons, who aren't dangerous to themselves as a community when they join. But then between the culture of the organizations they join, the power structure of the organizations they join, the trauma they force they face out there in the field, they become people who are capable of doing terrible things, even though they started off exactly what we think we wanted in police officers. Mm -hmm. Which of those theories do you put the most stock in? We're going to mm -hmm. talk about those. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I would frame it, I would take it a step back and say, you know, people are people everywhere. You know, I've been forcing it to travel the world and people are people everywhere. And so, you know, I think the same, I think everyone, so community conscious policing, our brand is based on uh, our curriculum of what we would refer to as 21st century conscious leadership. And so every organization and institution, I think, is facing this dilemma that you're posing. You know, the people that we've once attracted that led us to success based on the barometer that we had once before. And then, you know, trying to bring in who we think. And then once they're here, how does our culture shift or shape who they evolve to become? Well, we're just in such a, a leadership paradigm shift, a cultural paradigm shift now with technology, a lot of awakening. You know, I look at kids that I teach and what's available to them just at a press play and how many books I had to read to, <laughs> to, to find, you know, what I had to go through to, to discover that information, um, but also the distractions that they have competing with them. So what I would offer is, number one, I would encourage anyone, no matter how you feel about law enforcement, there was a time I couldn't, I, I didn't want to be around, didn't want to be nearby, I didn't feel safe. And there was a time through my accountability, my healing and my journey, you know, to then training um, where, um, you know, contact your local police department. If there's probably any way you all are going to engage anyway at some point in time, I would be proactive. And so in doing that in the city of Corvallis, where we launched our first uh, community conscious policing workshop, I was able to sit on oral review boards where the candidates come to interview 
to see mm -hmm. if they would make it to become a cadet. And so oftentimes, if there's not, there should be community members involved in those interview processes. And you get to get a perfect bird's eye view, I mean, uh, inside view of what that particular department is looking for, what they prioritize, um, and be able to offer your influence as a community member on uh, you know, what you would want to see. And so it depends on what caliber of agency you're dealing with in terms of who they're going to be prioritizing. Uh, different law enforcement agencies are accredited differently. Some might be a federally accredited, which they track more information. Some might have the CALEA accreditation. So they, you know, they're responsible for more than just the average. And so you'll find that some organizations are looking for more human qualities and characteristics, number one. But the problem is, how do you shift the, if there is an entrenched racist culture? And what I mean by that is not a bunch of white people sitting around using the N-word. I mean, are we talking about in 2021 hiring the first black officer? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, are we, you know, yeah. that's where, and so that's where I would say people, that's where our organization comes in, where it's not just about the training or just about coaching or just about policy. It's about the whole multi-pronged uh, organizational shift because one is not going to fix the other. Um, they go hand in hand and it's got a, a systemic problem yields a systemic solution or response. It's interesting. No either or, in short, no either or. Got to be yeah. a comprehensive all. On that note of, you know, the, the, the new cadets and the training police receive, do you feel police receive enough training? And if you don't, what do you think of the big deficiencies that police don't get trained in? How can I be generous? So number one, there's no um, overarching training body nationally. You know, there might be mm -hmm. folks like the FBI National Academy Associates that are not affiliated with the FBI J. Edgar Hoover. They're, uh, you know, training arm, I think globally, quite honestly. So you might have something like that where, but otherwise training kind of boils down to state, local, and, mm -hmm. you know, your, um, so it can vary, number one. Here in, in where I uh, live in, in Oregon, um, you know, I was privileged to, uh, to have access to the uh, police training uh, uh, on a local level, um, got full access. This was during the time of, um, which one was it? Maybe Michael Brown, uh, um, um, bless him and his family. I think it was during that time, but we had all access to their training, their training records, training materials. I've sat on statewide boards where I got to see how they developed curriculum, what was prioritized. And uh, the uh, we were observed by uh, someone from Vermont Law who presented a, a, a presentation and highlighted our work. And I wanna recognize them for doing so. And their banner was called Police, Community, Integrated Training and Education. You know, how do we train the police next to those that they serve? And they found us that we had been doing this um, pretty much in an unprecedented type of way. And what came out of that was I'm sitting in these meetings with academic researchers uh, developing training curriculum, you know, academic researchers, uh, law enforcement leaders, um, attorneys, but nobody that's going to be impacted by the policies we're talking about. Hmm. And I, I mean, that year I had been a victim of racial profiling. So everything's really hitting really close to home to me. Yeah. And so it just dawned on me sitting in this meeting that police, okay, respect for those who put on any uniform and go to defend, you know, respect. As long as you're not out there hurting people, respect to you. Uh, I'm not going to try to tell you how to do your job. But community, integrated, training and education, 
Yeah, my state, we 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 are the experts at that. There's not a police officer who could tell me about that. And so that's where we found that without police uh, community uh oppressed people who are most impacted being in the training room, embedding what they want to see in the training, and then having someone with a policy to back that in that training, then I don't know how any law enforcement officer would be held accountable. So if I that's one thing that I see missing from the narrative as far as activism. I wish there was more conversation about how do we, uh, which we had to do was break down the barrier to, there was a time law enforcement didn't want community involved in training and we had to, we had to, uh, we had to knock that, that, that barrier down. It's interesting. Huh. And, and I should say we had some, uh, some support also that helped to open the door for us to enter that training room. It wasn't all uh, us knocking it down. We did have some, uh, you know, some, some good folks that, that were supportive from law enforcement, I have to recognize that. So why do you think the law enforcement community was resistant to have community involved in training? And what do you think kind of turned the tides? Um, I wouldn't say that tides have been turned. I would mm. just say that, uh, you know, when we started, what I should say was uh, the catalyst was, uh, I was a faculty member at a university. Uh, I was a new father. Um, there was a hate crime on campus. All of the same type of uh, police involved shootings was going on. Yeah. My students that I felt responsible for didn't have a place to process. Um, and some of them began to just simply flunk out of school. And so mm -hmm. it was born out of a need to do something. There was no thought of a business or anything like that. I was on track to be a community college president. Um, but in wanting to do something about it, I simply uh, gave a survey you know, and said, you know, how many of you all are impacted um, by hate, you know, related issues on or around campus? And the response that we got was overwhelming. And it, it was clear to me that we were dealing with, you know, uh, what I would have considered back then to be a pattern of practice. I was sitting as the Legal Redress Committee Chairman of NAACP. My wife and partner were sitting as the Executive Director. We were in the perfect position to be able to respond um, and so when we contacted our local law enforcement agency about these stories that were being told and this qualitative data, they had statistics saying, well, no, we're not racial, we're not racial profiling. We can show you, we can prove. But luckily they were open to hear our qualitative data, which is the stories that we had to tell that were very real. And the only hmm. reason we couldn't respond in accountability perspective the way I might've wanted to at that time was no one had put specifically which law enforcement agency had profiled them. Uh, so there's five agencies that all have a headquarters in one building. So that's what I would advise anybody if you have a stop, at least pay attention to what department, you know, county sheriff, city police, homeland, you know, homeland security, et cetera, uh, then yeah. you can find a way back. So it was in that, um, uh, uh, out of that, because we had a stack of surveys that you know, we had to find a way to discover some peace. And so training was born out of that discussion, but it was defensively driven though. We didn't go in asking for much. <laughs> we went in making some demands that were well received, that were well received, you know, respect to them. So, you know, in, in, in my head, I have, a, I don't know, we'll say a theory, right? To explain some of what goes on. Um, I'm gonna share that and curious to hear what, what you think of it. Because to me, when I see, <clears throat> Not in all cases, but we'll say in the majority of cases, when you see police misconduct, when I see it, I can trace it back in most cases to a pretty simple, common 
error in human thinking and judgment making, right? There's nothing unique, unfortunately, about these police officers. The only thing unique is that they're in a position of power and have, you know, state-sanctioned violence on their side. But like the things happen to them are, are things that would happen to a normal person. I'll give you a, a, an embarrassing example from my own life. So uh, my wife and I were, were traveling cross country. We're moving to Colorado for the first time. We stopped at McDonald's to grab some food. As I'm walking on McDonald's, two Latino guys walk up to me and ask me, hey, can you give us a jump on our car? And I did say yes, but the very first thing that went through my mind involuntarily was this assessment of like, what are the odds that these guys are actually here to jump me? What are the odds that this is just some kind of ruse to get me to turn my back and they're actually gonna steal my car? Like, am I in danger here? And eventually I decided, nah, that's kind of crazy. I'll just help the guys out. But I realized that sprung unbidden to my mind. And I have been asked by many, many white people for a jump to their car and never once has that sprung to my mind. Where the hell did that come from? Now, again, in me, it's not all that dangerous in the police officer who has that same gut instinct to be naturally suspicious of Latinos. That's very dangerous because that police officer has to make a split second decision about what to do when that Latino reaches down here in his glove box, right? And when you're making those split second decisions, it's your subconscious, your unconscious mind that tells you a lot of what to do, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just the way human beings work in life or death situations is it's the unconscious mind who kind of tells us what to do. But unfortunately that unconscious mind is unduly influenced by who knows what in our culture that leads you know, uh, an officer to assess a situation is more dangerous when it involves a black person. So again, it's not anything uniquely evil about the officer. It's a very common human bias that happens. It's just, they happen to be put in environments where those biases become dangerous. For someone like me who has the same biases, I'm never in an environment where that becomes dangerous. So we get to this point where even the bad officers, the Derek Chauvin's of the world, aren't necessarily any worse than the rest of us. They're just put in positions where those mental biases can cause real harm. What do you think of that, that theory, that V perspective? You know, I, I appreciate it. You know, I think um, that uh, it was more of the thinking when I first got into kind of doing this as work. You know, a lot of the work that I've done, I did out of survival, right, first mm -hmm. off. Um, but as I get deeper, so it's levels in this work. So, you know, we did some work called racism and trauma, and then we recognized that they had to be healing components. So even with my book, um, best practices in community conscious policing. It focused on, you know, accountability. It focused on, you know, our, our BIPOC led community training, uh, which was, you know, pretty, um, not gonna say revolutionary, but it was just worth mentioning at the time, it still is. But we noticed that there's this whole healing component that was missing. And so we went back to the drawing board to integrate this from a healing component. And also from a, a one thing that I believe distinguishes us is that it's important to bring in our uh, for oppressed communities to bring in our ancient wisdom, to bring in our communal wisdom, to inform a lot of the, you know, the academic research and a lot of the institutional knowledge, which, you know, can be useful, but it's got to be contextualized in, in our own barometer. And a lot of that is pre-colonial, you know, in terms of our ancient wisdom, the rites of passages that we've gone through in our cultures, et cetera. And the, so the reason why I'm, um, I'm, um, um, integrating um, all of this. Uh, tell me your, uh, remind me of your question again, because there's a reason why I'm, I'm bringing all this up. So it's basically about common human biases being disastrous. And I got it. I got it. Thank you. Um, through, for example, my indigenous lens, one of my uh, realizations going through my own decolonizing processes 
is recognizing, you know, how powerful our words are. You know, so I do a lot of executive coaching uh, with supervisors, et cetera, and institutions. And so, you know, in our view, words can be just as powerful as a gunshot. You know, so we might not see it on that statistical data point, but for the person who's experiencing it, what I transpired maybe just a microaggression at work on the way in between appointments might not manifest until 10 or 20 years later because it stepped on a thread that, you know, ties me to 400 years of oppression that the person who crossed me is never going to have to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I would say is, is, or hope to reveal is that there are chauvins at school, at work. So for example, when I first moved to, you know, uh, and I want to make it clear, I, I love where I live. You know, I live in the state of Oregon now, not from here, but from California, but, uh, you know, I contributed greatly. Um, uh, and this is where, you know, for, for the time being, my family is going to be. But for the first two or three years, not only the racism that I had to endure based on the Oregon exclusion laws, go check that out because it still impacts our daily, our daily realities. Um, and then the internalized oppression and, and, and by, you know, uh, oppressed peoples who internalize that behavior and now then display it with one another because that's all that we know. So those are the things that I would say that I would want to reveal and say that, yes, what we witnessed with George Floyd, peace to him and his family, God bless them. Um, but let's not minimize that what our auntie is going through at work you know what I mean? Just doing right. that. You know, I want to honor it's not the same, but in our pre-colonial ancient wisdom lens, yeah, it still, it still, uh, it still tears down and destroys, uh, particularly when you come from uh, communities that are all about building and uplifting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the same, you know, forces are at work in both those cases, right? Again, one is just disastrous and somebody ends up dead and the other one, someone just ends up, you know. It's the result um, of the cultural violence that we spoke about, whether it's Shaman that administers it, whether it's, right, uh, somebody's supervisor over the course of 20 years and they die of, so my father died of, you know, 37 of hypertension and kidney failure. His brother died of hypertension and kidney failure at 40. Their father died of hypertension and kidney failure at 53. You think that's all our fault? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, so yeah. that, exactly, exactly. I just want to make sure we we uh, we honor we honor all of our respective experiences and struggles. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading at some point about like the impact that you know continual stress does have on your body, and they see it both in you know lower income people, regardless of race, experience some of this, and then you know black people, and really by extension all people of color. And then when you get that overlap of both low income and a person of color, good God, the amount of stress you're under and tension, that's just always there. And the effect it has on your body. Yeah, it's 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 appalling, right? Because, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, the you know narrative around things like microaggressions or racial profiling is, oh, get over it. You're fine. It's not that big a deal. Right. Nobody's hurt. Um, it's just the way the world is. You got to toughen up. Right. And like, you know. Maybe there's an element of truth to the fact that if that's the way your world is, you do want to toughen up. But the truth is you can't toughen your way out of kidney failure and hypertension. <laughs> like your body is being affected by this. You can't just will your way out of that, right? So, yeah. Hmm. Um, one last thing I want to, uh, to make sure we have time to touch on here. Sure. Again, on this concept of 
maybe police departments themselves are environments that kind of lead people down the wrong path. Maybe the police officers themselves have the best intentions and are good people, but you spend 30 years in this toxic environment, you end up, some things get normalized, pressures are exerted. I mean, institutions and power structures have that influence on, on people. Um, I want to take a look at power structures within police departments, and I want to look at two specific examples, right? One example, and forgive me for not having the full details on this, but I know one of the officers involved in George Floyd's death, he himself was a person of color. He had joined the police force with the goal of kind of cleaning things up from the inside. He was every bit what we would consider a good cop, but he was junior. He was like still in his first six months or something of training. And there was this strong power dynamic that forced him into silence because Chauvin was his superior, the one who was training him. And there's this expectation that you don't question the one who's training you. You don't speak up in defiance of the person who's your boss, right? Which again, I've experienced that in my jobs. Just nobody died when it happened to me, right? But it's a common human trait to have this power structure of like, don't question those in authority, right? It's actually the same trend that Asian airlines noticed when they had so many issues with airlines crashing back in like the 2000s. And then they made some adjustments to change that power dynamic. But it was the same power dynamic at play, right? Where junior can't speak up against senior. So there's that power dynamic um, at play. So if you are a good cop who joins the force and is, have a number of bad cops in leadership, you get pushed into silence. And the second one is for people who refuse to get pushed into silence. And again, I apologize for not knowing the details on this, but I know there was a black woman police officer in Buffalo who was witnessing police brutality and physically intervened and stopped the officer from committing even more. Uh, and she got fired and lost her pension. And you know, the, the, to my knowledge, the guy who was committing the brutality is more or less okay. She was the one who took the fall for intervening. So even when you do decide to say, hey, I'm gonna stick to my morals, the power structure protects the immoral ones and makes, makes the moral ones uh, at risk. So what do you got to say about power dynamics in police departments? You know, power dynamics in my experience, um, so you are correct. For example, the one uh, who was in, uh, who's a part of the Chauvin trial, um, my understanding was, I'm not sure if he's biracial or a black man, I don't wanna assume his race, but definitely I believe he self-identified as a, as a man of color and uh, sought to join the police department to make change from within. And I've heard this narrative. I've had uh, people suggest that to me as well. Um, there's levels to this work. You know, there's, there's levels to this work. And while his intention might've been um, noble, uh, the structure, so make it, to make it clear to our viewers, that when you, in most departments, I can't speak for all, but you go through your basic training, you might do that somewhere in the state or somewhere else possibly, just get like a, a basic training. And then you might come home to your, your local department and get more training. And then you may be dispatched with a senior officer, you know, kind of a, a, a internship on the job training, right? And then this person has to sign off for you to be able to be fully instated, right? And so for community conscious policing, we're seeking to be uh, a part of the training at the inception, wherever that takes place, whether it's at a state training facility or wherever, so that by the time this person arrives at whatever department they work at, they have a change agent mentality. Hmm. They understand the levels, they understand what to look for, they understand the costs and the consequences of all decisions. Right. And so why that lady might have lost her attention, what would have been on her conscience had she not done it? I don't know. So I'm sure the ancestors, I hope, you know, are going to look out for her. 
right? Um, that would be my wish, but I know that, that a price comes with uh, a price comes with uh, doing the right things at times. Um, so I would, uh, I just wanted to make that clear so folks understood like what he was up against to do something, and um, you know what is the cost of not doing something. Um, so I would offer. Um, why don't you redirect me with your question so I don't ramble? I want to speak directly to it. <laughs> I'm just curious about the effects of the power structures and how the power structures and police departments may take good people and lead them down bad paths, right? Yeah, and I think that's why I mentioned the historical narrative is so important. So, for example, coming from East Oakland, California, having uh, the honor and privilege to join to initiate historically black uh, college fraternities and organizations, and even now, um, um, uncolonized uh, institutions out of Africa where I'm really getting to know more about my, my spiritual uh, ancestry. When you have a barometer of slavery as your narrative, which is extremely important to honor the struggle that we came out of. In my family in Oakland, in East Oakland, you know, those narratives, for whatever reason, for me, they didn't, they didn't survive to me and my generation. Um, the stories I heard were of our Native American, Choctaw, Seminole uh, 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 ancestors, you know, blood ancestors, you know, my grand grandparents, mom and dads, their brothers and sisters, you know, standing up to oppressors. I won't share publicly what they did, but standing up, my grandparents broke the color line in Oakland that allowed immigrant families to move into Oakland Hills, like Vice President Kamala Harris's family. Uh, so. For me, it was all about what is this liber liberation narrative? Uh, and that's why I think in our work, uh, that's when I approach law enforcement, it's not from the descendant of slaves, even though that's an honest part of my ancestry, I'm approaching them as a co-architect of this nation, good and bad. I don't claim to be perfect. There's aspects of me that are probably contradictory, but I'm, a, I'm a, talking to them as a co-architect. And so it levels any type of playing field. I know if I make a mistake, unfortunately, they'll probably have to do their job, you know? And mm -hmm. if they make a mistake, they respect that more than likely, I'm going to probably have to do my job. And so when we sit down, just like any two bosses, when you sit down, peace has to come from it. Because mm -hmm. too many people would be impacted. So peace has to dwell. And so that's been um, been our approach. You know, we lead with, account we lead with community building. That's what we promote. But we've always had a an arm of accountability. Um, to be able to, uh, uh, you know, make sure that we are, we're established. And, uh, you know, there's things like Cointelpro and programs that sought to make sure that they distracted folks like us and, and the work that we do. And so we just have to fortify ourselves. So it's always a balance, you know, and I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, you know, on our dollar bill, there's an eagle, good, bad, or indifferent. But uh, in one arm is the, uh, uh, is the olive branch, you know, it uh, denotes peace. And the other is arrows, and it denotes war. Now, I'm someone of peace. I want to make sure that we only, it's clear that we only operate under legal means and we, we never promote violence or anything like that, but we do stand in self-defense. And so in that image, the eagle is facing the olive branch. He's facing the direction of the olive branch. So we lead in peace, and that's all that we want. Um, but we want um, folks who are impacted to not be just stuck in an ideology, but know your history, know it all. You know, no Malcolm, Huey, Martin. And when you are faced with the situation, utilize your historical strengths and your ancient wisdom to be able to move, maneuver. And then at some point, I hope that we will be able to actually be in a space of actually trying to generate uh, 
generate what we want to see in our realities um, versus being uh, from a, a reactionary or responsive place. It's interesting. So now we spend some time kind of, you know, at least exploring the topic of, you know, what's wrong, what's right, what's good, what's bad. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly have, have, have brought some things to the surface that uh, that are problematic. In your vision, like, what is the solution, right? If you had a lawmaker in front of you right now and said, okay, Brandon, tell me what to do, we're going to do it. What would the changes that need to happen to create the right kind of police force that this country needs? Well, number one, I think um, my response would be um, and, and has been, you know, that I'm not the, you know, I think it's always important as someone who finds themselves in leadership. I don't think that you go out to be a leader. I think that you just go out and work and you find yourself in leadership. For those of us who find ourselves in leadership, I think it's very important that if we ever do get the get the light or the mic, that we make sure that we use it to shine it on, you know, the grassroots folks on the ground who have been putting in this work, whose shoulders that we stand on. And, and uh, so it's not about me. So I'm saying that to say that it, I don't think it would be about us proposing the solution. But what I would want to make sure and be involved in is what is the process in which mm. we ensure that people who are most impacted live close to the pain, oppressed peoples are architects, you know, in the process of police accountability police training, healing from the trauma, police brutality. And they're just not uh, the recipients of whatever is done to them by people who are getting paid, <laughs> you know? So yeah. for us, community conscious policing isn't necessarily about the solution, but more just making sure that the process in through which, you know, our discovery and our solutions come from is indeed balanced and in harmony, not just with the law, but in, uh, you know, in our, um, you know, within the fabric of our beings, you know what I mean? Um, so I think that that's where we um, would approach. And uh, why don't you take a breath with me? I don't know if you hear this, but this is my mindfulness breath. Take a breath with me. It's cool that you have that. <laughs> Sorry to so interrupt. Have had it off. Uh, no worries, no worries. That's a, that's a that's a cool thing you got there. Um, okay. So on the note of community involvement, I've heard you talk about community involvement in the actual police training, right? Materials and then also community oversight. So would that mean that community is even involved in like the discipline and holding accountable aspect as well? Absolutely. So let me explain to you the difference. I'll give you two quick anecdotes. The first being um, in Oakland. I told you the story. You know of. Uh, <laughs> countless stories, <laughs> the story, the countless stories. Uh, shout out to uh, to uh, all my family in Oakland, uh, especially those who are the victims and survivors. Um, but the countless times that we complained and there was nothing done, you know, mm -hmm. uh, support the uh, officers. Um, in Berkeley, so in Oakland and Berkeley, I was detained in front of my own home. I live, my mom lives in the, lived in the Berkeley Hills. My grandma lived where I grew up in the Oakland Hills. So million dollar properties. I'm uh, accused of burglarizing both of them. One of them, I, you know, we've been there four generations, longer than anybody else on the block, right? Um, the difference is in Oakland, 
when I complained, they supported the officers. And some folks might uh, remember uh, former police chief Danielle Outlaw. Well, she was the director of internal affairs at that time. Um, I never shared this story publicly because I didn't want to tear down the first black woman police chief elected as uh, police chief in Portman. But now I want to share. So uh, she's uh, that internal affairs is the folks that uh, with the coalition of police accountability, we had to work to take that $1.4 million from internal affairs and use it to fund community oversight board that's in power now in Oakland. That's a lot of work. Took to two or three years while, while I was in graduate school. That's why they say black folks got to work two and three times harder because I did. Yeah. <laughs> and then you talk about the diversity initiative I led on campus when I was there. In Berkeley, detained in front of my own home, there was a, at the time, there was a police community review board. Mm-hmm. And so instead of complaining to the internal affairs department, like I had done in Oakland, right, where Danielle Outlaw supported her officers and I had to go get ACLU and, and the whole community and go and basically, you know, take her job in a sense, uh, at least mm-hmm. in that capacity. But in Berkeley, I submitted to the Community Police Review Board. And that's where I was awarded a monetary settlement. There was disciplinary actions against the officers involved. So one uh, died of natural causes before the hearing, you know, bless them. Uh, one was uh, never going to be promoted again in his career as a mark on his record. And the black officer, unfortunately, he uh, had already had marks on his record. So this was the final straw and he was fired and he was the main aggressor. Um, so I need to honor that I had the privilege to have an attorney. You know, I paid more for the, my family paid more for the attorney than I want in the monetary settlement, but it was worth it for me to be able to sit eye to eye with those who had crossed me and to, you know, leave that scenario in a space of empowerment, uh, not just for, for me, but for those who were less privileged. So that's the difference of how an empowered community oversight board could kind of render justice compared to an internal affairs. And I just don't have any, uh, any, uh, I don't, I don't, th- I don't know of any law enforcement that would adequately police themselves. You know, I think it's just an opportunity for them to prepare their rebuttal. So that would be a key difference. Cool. Well, we don't have time to explore this too much, but I do find it interesting what you brought up there, right? You know, that the main aggressor in this case was a black police officer. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear racism, they think it's simply a matter of, I hate you because of the color of your skin. And that's not it, man. I mean, that that is a form it can take, but like so much more than that. It's this, like I said, this unconscious bias that makes you more uncomfortable and more suspicious in the presence of a person of color. And the sad truth is that a a black police officer can experience that same thing through the culture they grow up in and the work environment, the police force, where they themselves become more suspicious, more on guard, more aggressive when they're, you know, uh, working with a person of color. So like, Again, I think one of the bad things that's happened with this narrative around racism in the U.S. is that all of us, at least when I say I mean white people, learned about racism through the context of slavery and Jim Crow and the civil rights. And we understood that racism was this terrible thing by deeply bigoted, hateful people who consciously believed having dark skin, it made you less of a human being. And that's all we were learned taught about racism, right? And that's it. And so many white people still think that's all racism is, which is why you hear things like, I'm not racist, I have black friends. If I was racist, how could I have a black friend, right? So we have to change the narrative around what we're talking about with racism, right? A lot of it can happen under the surface, but that doesn't change how damaging it can be, the fact that it happens under the surface, you know? And again, that's a whole nother podcast episode, but (laughs) it didn't bear mentioning in this case. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Brandon, um, for joining us. Uh, any final thoughts you have to share on the police that we haven't covered yet? 
Uh, you know, what I, would, to, I guess I would just close in uh, uh, just to kind of build on what you just shared, you know, to be clear, to bring some clarity. You know, like I said, there's levels to this. And while racism is a part of the conversation, all of the isms are. But, mm-hmm. you know, it really stems from, you know, we've talked about white supremacy culture. But I am not even sure that that captures it all. That's why that black officer could still uphold that white supremacy culture that he probably embodied from what he had endured, right? Um, so what I want to honor is um, the culture from coming from fraternalism myself, um, patriarchy, you know, patriarchal patriarchy, you know, with capitalism, et cetera, all of that breeds these things that impact everybody that's not in that inner circle. Uh, and most times to start with black native uh you know, trans folks on down usually, uh, depending yeah. on what season it is. And so uh, I just want to honor, uh, while, you know, these stories are kind of on one end, on the other, I'm about humanity. And like I said, yeah. people are people everywhere. And I believe at the core, uh, there's this concept of interbeing, you know, that I learned from uh, a Tetnahan, a Buddhist monk who brought mindfulness to the West, who I don't think gets enough credit and in some ways, what I had to uh, offer, uh, and I'll make this this quick and I'll make this brief, this is the note that I end on. Um, uh, we're all interconnected in some kind of way. My wife is Asian. My kids are Chinese. We just came from their family. So stop Asian hate, Black Lives Matter. You can't pull them apart in my house. There's three languages spoken here. So the complexities that we're dealing with, um, we're going to have to reimagine a new way of engaging with one another. Um, and I'll end by saying, um, uh, situation happened to me, profiling happened to me. I redressed the situation and the project manager was a person who ended up getting fired, uh, and along with everybody else. And I didn't ask for that. I actually thought he was cool. He's a white man. Um, mm-hmm. but they did what they're supposed to do. He got fired. And a couple months later on my heart, I was like, let me find out what happened to him. And I looked him up and I found him on LinkedIn and on LinkedIn, he had uh, his head, his arm with who I seem to be his wife. You know, uh, you got to be love your wife to have that on your profile picture. And she was a black woman. So this white man who's now married to a black woman. And in my mind, I got him fired. And now he's going home on Christmas to tell his black family that things might be different because of. So was I right in what I did? Yes. Uh, did I, Was I right to stand my ground? And was it fair? Yes. But then I had to say, OK, once I do have accountability, at what point do I become the perpetrator. And so that's where this trauma healing component had to be introduced along with our BIPOC-led, community-led police training and the accountability piece. So again, I appreciate you for your time and and, uh, allow me to share share a little bit more about what we do and who I am uh, with you today. It's been my honor. Thanks so much, Brandon. There's so much covered here and so many jumping off points that I'll be thinking about, right? Even just that last bit there is food for thought for days, you know, about that, you know, victim to perpetrator to healing and that whole journey. So yeah, thanks so much uh, for coming on here, Brandon. Uh, It's been great. You got it. Peace and blessings. Bye.